Welcome to the Ides of Macro, where we discuss investing, trading, and big picture frameworks, all through the lens of global macroeconomics. This is the bit where I remind you that none of this podcast is investment advice. In fact, this is purely for entertainment and educational purposes. But please do hit that subscribe button if you want the latest videos from Lycan as soon as they're available. And with that, let's get on with the podcast. Welcome, everybody, to the Ides of Macro podcast. Today is my absolute delight to have Imran Lacker of Options Insights, a chat that I've uh, interviewed many times before and worked with on regular occasions over the last couple of years. Uh, Imran, great to see you again. Good to see you, Roger. Thanks for having me. And um, I'm looking forward to basically understanding your framework and then applying the framework to some of the stuff that we've been seeing over the last few weeks. We're recording this, I think, on the 4th of October. Quite a lot's going on. But before we get into kind of where you might feel things are going and how things are playing out, please, can you just tell us how you look at the world? Because you have a very specific framework. It's kind of based on your background as a volatility trader at major um, investment banks. And you've taken that framework and then applied it to the macro world, so across all assets. Could you just briefly explain how you use that and how you use it to see the world? 100%. So, um, so I was a macro, I was an index trader at uh, various big banks uh, like Citi, Credit Suisse, Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. Um, and so I was always interested in what was going on in the macro because that's what impacted indices. And that was the, the instrument that I traded. But I traded options on those indices. So I got to see what was going on in volatility markets. Um, and, you know, the thing about volatility markets is that they kind of give you some different information, right? They, they give you quite a nice sense. You can get a sense of when you get reaching inflection points. Um, you know, you see divergences where people, sophisticated players are putting on hedges that go against the direction that the market is going. Or you see panic and you see you really can feel the panic because implied volatility and skew, which are metrics in the options market, are absolutely exploding um, to points where they never would normally be. So it's very rare for them to reach these extremes. That's when you can get a sense of where peak panic really has set in and you get these reversals. So so I think kind of ha having that framework where you look at the macro, you understand what the big macro drivers are. You're looking at how prices are moving in different asset classes and your volatility adjusting those to how they should move based on what their vol is. That's one way of doing it. But then add, when you add a layer of what the vol is doing, what the skew is doing, how these assets are realizing, and you're seeing changes there, or you're seeing patterns or trends there, then that adds a whole new layer to the framework that can be quite useful to identify um, not only big shifts and, and inflections, but also trading opportunities. And when you're talking about those sorts of things, is it things like you look at implied volatility and it might have got a lot richer, so much more expensive versus its historical sort of its history. And you might think, OK, there's a bit more panic now in the volatility market than I'm actually seeing in the underlying price action. Therefore, you might want to think about a reversal there. And similarly, sometimes if volatility is too low, you might go, well, that's a bit of complacency given the price action we've got. And, and, can exactly. you, and, and then the other one is just, again, um, skew. Um, a lot of people will know that, what that is, but could you just give a quick definition of skew and, again, how you use that to, to look at the market? Sure, sure. So, um, so obviously, implied volatility gives you kind of the market's, the market's forecast, let's say, on what future realized volatility will be. But the thing is, when you trade options, you can trade any maturity and any strike option. So 
there are all these different implied volatility numbers all over the map. So another way of kind of thinking about it is that the implied volatility of a specific option on a specific maturity is the market's future expectation of realized vol on that asset up to that point in time in the proximity of the strike. So there's like a conditionality there that says, if we were to get anywhere near that strike, what does the market think we're going to be moving like? So when you add that definition, you understand that options that trade with strikes that are below the market versus options that trade with strikes that are above the market should trade on different volatilities. Because when we go down, we tend to go down pretty sharply and pretty quickly. And when we go up, we tend to grind up quite slowly. So when we measure skew, what we're doing is we're taking the difference between downside strike options and we do it, we do it via delta. So we do 25 delta puts on equities, for example, and compare the vol of those to the vol of 25 delta calls, which are upside strikes and see what that number looks like. And then you can track that number in terms of how it trades within its range to get a sense for whether skew is cheap or whether skew is expensive. And moves in that skew number will basically, what they're basically telling you is changes in the perceived risk in markets. The tail risk that is being priced in markets, is it getting richer or is it getting cheaper? And, and you're talking really there when you're talking about the downside being generally um, richer than the upside. That's very, very common in the equity space, at least especially in equity indices. But in, in other assets, for instance, FX and, and commodities, it often swings from being rich in the upside to being rich in the downside. But again, it's got a history, but it tends to be equities where it's, the skew is skewed to richness in the downside almost always, but not quite. Whereas other commodities and other products, assets can actually fluctuate between the two. Exactly right. And by tracking that, you when you see the skew flipping, that is often a leading indicator, right? So we've had that happen multiple times this year in commodities where we've seen gold or copper skew or even oil skew, even uranium skew recently. We've seen that parabolic move in uranium. You saw the skew flip towards calls. Yes, uranium had already started to rally when that was happening, but had you waited until the skew flipped to calls and then just bought a load of uranium, it would it would have worked out very well because it still had a massive move coming after the skew flipped. So because you get so many participants in the market who trade options and understand options and understand the leverage that options can give them, there will be moves in skew when a, when enough of those big investors who who have got the who've got the firepower to trade those options, those out of money options in big enough size to move the options market you will see that happening, you will see that price action, and that should give you some warning or some sign that, okay, there's something going on here, there's a, there's definitely a perceived change, there's a change in the perceived risk in this asset, and I need to pay attention and, and see if I, if I agree with that or disagree with that. And so would you say that, let's say you're seeing that change in skews, it's sort of maybe the, the ultra pros are kind of move that, that first, the underlying price first, and then the sort of secondary pros for the options market might kind of pile into that directional bet. You start to see that, let's say, the call side volatility implied vol going up, and you think, right, okay, this might have a bit of momentum, and then it starts to move, and then everybody maybe piles into the delta, and that's when it starts getting extended. And would you look for a combination of that extension of price and maybe a fading in that upside? How would you normally, what sort of things are you looking for for, let's say that move, which this, that move in the skew gives you an idea that the impetus might be picking up to when actually, okay, maybe yeah. it's now time to get out of that move. That's, that's a great question. And um, so, so in my experience, 
you're, you're right. You, you get the spot move starting and the skew hasn't done that much. Then you start to see the skew agreeing with the spot move and the skew starts to move. And now if you then get the acceleration, like uranium is a great example because it's literally just happened in the last week or two. Okay. So you get the acceleration and the price action goes parabolic. The vol has exploded as well, right? So the vol, the vol wasn't really going. The spot was moving, then the skew was moving, then the move starts to accelerate, and now the vol starts to move. So that's the at the money vol is catching a massive bid. So when you've got the vol at an extreme now, in say the 80th or 90th percentiles, you've got the skew in the same thing in the 90th percentiles, and then you kind of start to see that the vol starts to trickle back down a bit. Okay, the vol's kind of reached a peak. And the gravity of the vol has come kicked kick back in. And that's what I call it gravity because it, it goes up sharply, but it, it always comes back down, right? So when you start to see the vol come back down and the skew is still at the extreme and the spot move has, has been parabolic, but is kind of now stabilized, that is your signal that a reversal is potentially there, right? Yeah. So that is very much what happened in uranium now it's not it's not like you can time this to the to the hour or to the day or whatever but just in general if you kind of know where things are in their percentile ranks in their ranges and stuff like that then you can start to get that sense that yes this is now looking very very stretched so for example TLT right now has been melting down for the last week it just hit 85 the vol's in the 94th percentile, the skew's in the 98th percentile. And to me, that is now clearly an exhaustion signal, right? So I'm now looking for ways to position tactically long bonds because the vol metrics are telling me this thing is way overdone. And, and if you look at the realized vol, it has spiked. Because remember, implied vol can move for various reasons. It can move because there's buyers or sellers of options and that drives implied vol up or down. But it can also move because realized vol is high or low. So, so we've had this massive move in vol in bonds, but realized vol is at 21 on a 10 day basis on TLT right now. But the implied's at 24. And that's really high for the implied, right? So it, if, if the realized was 30 and the implied was at 24, you might be like, you know, I kind of want to wait to see this spot stabilize right now because it's still realizing way better than where it's implying. I'm not going to be the first one to sell vol here because I'm not sure we're done. But the fact that we've kind of moved down here and realized it's only 21 and implied is overshot to 24, that makes you think, okay, this is like extreme fear has kicked in because people are paying up for it at vol levels that are not even realizing because they're that scared of this move. Right. And, and yeah. similar sort of story with skew. And so that, that kind of brings it nicely into this, your, cause, you know, there's all these different facets, this kind of 3D world, but you're looking at, you know, implied volatility versus history. You're looking at skew versus history, but you're also looking at implied volatility, I, what the market's paying versus realized, which is what the asset is actually doing. So there's a whole bunch of, of comparisons yeah. where you can see, is it expensive or not versus its own history? Is it expensive or not versus what the underlying is doing? And then you kind of build a mental matrix of all these things. Yeah, so, so, and, and it is a complex multi-dimensional thing, right? So it's not like it's always going to call everything perfectly, but it's, it's just, you're looking at it through a different lens, right? You're, rather than just having a one-dimensional lens of looking at it, things going up and down, or, or just looking at a chart and doing some basic technicals on it, you have other factors that can corroborate or, or deny 
what you think the the story is basically right yeah. and a nice thing as well is where you can compare things to each other so you know we have a matrix where we put all the asset classes on the same page where we show vol and skew in a scatter plot form and it's color coded so you have you have the commodities on there you have the bond you have the bonds on there you have the fx the equities and you can see where they all sit so when you start to live and we start to feel that and watch that on a daily basis you can tell when things are moving around and when things are kind of out of whack from where they normally would be. So TLT vol doesn't get this much above S&P vol very often, right? This is a pretty extreme. For TLT to be at 24 and S&P to be at 18, that six vol differential is pretty damn extreme. So that in itself is telling me, well, this this gap needs to close somehow, right? Is it going to be TLT vol needs to get hammered back down again? Or is it the S&P has to catch up? Right. And these are the sort of things that you can spot and, and then they can get your juices flowing to then turn that into trade ideas. Right. That makes sense to express your views. And, and so when you're looking at this sort of thing, so let's take that, that TLT, you might start off with looking at something where the vol and skew is extreme. The price action has been quite extreme, but some of them are starting to fade. And you might look at this tactically. Now, I know a lot of people are thinking structurally bonds should start to rally, but you might probably think first off, OK, it's a tactical position, and if you get the tactical position and it starts working in your favor, you can then start to, to work out yourself whether you want this to be a little bit more structural. But are you nearly always looking initially for things that look tactical, and then if, as they evolve, you might turn them into something that's more structural? Yes. So, so when I'm trading on the back of these sort of extremes in the vol metrics that I'm seeing, like vol's gone really high or skew's gone really high or skew's shifting and things like that, that's always going to be a tactical trade that I'm doing, right? Because the, the moves in these metrics are kind of giving me a tactical view about what may happen next, right? So that will be, and my tactical time horizon tends to be sort of one to three months. And then if it, but if it's like my entire view is driven on a fundamental framework, like, you know, something like the uranium story, right? I love, I love the fundamental uranium story or, you know, it might be oil. I might think, okay, the SPR has been drawn down too much and we've got the Saudis cutting production and, and it's going to get super tight. So I'm bullish oil. So I did do that. I did the oil trade and that wasn't tactical really. That was just, that was fundamentally driven. And it was like, okay, how do I want to express that? So then sometimes I'll express those more fundamentally driven views with longer dated options. So I might do a six to 12 month position, either an outright option or a spread. Usually it's a spread because when I go that far out, I don't necessarily want to just be outright long the option and, and be long a load of Vega. So to keep the Vega down, I, I do a spread position, which still gets me into that trade and allows me to just sit on that trade and not worry about time decay too much or worry too much about the vol going down against me. Um, but those are the kind of ways I tend to do it. And when you're just talking about that sort of bond and, and equity vol, what's it, kind of your perception here? Because it does feel like, you know, at, when we look at the surface level, so when we look at things like the VIX, for instance, and I know the VIX is not necessarily a great measure because it's not really tradable, but let's say you look at the VIX again on the 4th of, of October, whatever it is, it's been sub 20 and only just been above 17 um, only very recently. You had this extreme in bond vol. Do you feel that, um, that, you know, is it basically, do you think that equities are acting like they don't feel a recession's coming, you're, they're not that much fear, or are the part of this matrix in terms of, let's say, skew or longer-dated vol compared to what we're seeing at the spot VIX? Are you seeing anything there that's suggesting that there is a bit more fear than that spot VIX, or do you think that there is, 
not necessarily complacency, but the, the, the equity market is still trying to battle with, actually, there might be some growth still out there at the moment. So I think the problem with the S&P vol surface is that there's an overwhelming amount of supply, right? So there is a lot of structured product supply. There's a lot of dispersion trading going on where people sell indices and buy single stocks. There's just so much vol hitting the market on a consistent basis in index land, right? That, yeah, it will always, it will always look like equities are underpricing risk, right? So, so, so to really see risk in equities, you, you kind of got to look outside the broad indices. So you've got to say, well, how is the Russell performing relative to the, to the S&P or the NASDAQ, right? That you can see the regional banks are in the gutter, right? So, you kind of got to look at where the sector rotation is and, and what's going on in those markets. And it's not even the vol of those markets because the vol of those markets isn't necessarily that liquid or that traded, but it's the relative divergences between those other markets are showing you about recessionary price action. Whereas the broad indices, there's just constant supply coming right from all over the place. And, and you know, you've, you've got the over, you've got the underwriters, the over, the vast swap sellers. You've got all these yield hunting strategies, so many different forms of sellers in index land that I, yeah, I, I think, you know, when I see skew on S&P go back to median levels, that feels rich to me. Now, I, I've adjusted my mindset that when I see skew at median, it's, it's expensive. It's, it, I, it, I see, on, I see 50% on the board and I think it's saying 80 basically, right? Okay. Because of that structural supply that I know is always there. Um, that might be dangerous, to be honest, in some, in, in a COVID type scenario, that might be dangerous because you like, you think, oh, it, it's traded back to the top of the range when really it hasn't. And then if, if all hell breaks loose, then it can go a lot higher. Um, but in general, that you have got to factor in some of these structural things that are in the market that are, that are kind of distorting things a bit. So, so basically, and you know, I think, almost recalibrating the messaging from the VIX based on this. And, and, you know, as you said, it might be a dangerous thing to do, but at least if you have a framework where you have that awareness that, you know, 20 might be the old 30. So today's 20 might be 30 of yesteryear. It might not, mm -hmm. but it's a possibility. And, and just mm -hmm. with these, you talk about these structured products. Is this that sort of world where because we've got interest rates which are quite high, you can combine effectively cash generating a yield with selling volatility and actually get some quite nice returns from, you know, capital protected notes, all these sort of things, these, these structured products, as you say, that the banks love to sell and increasingly institutions like to sell. Basically, is mm -hmm. it just we've been in this good environment with relatively decent um, volatility across some assets and a combination of high cash returns giving in combination structured products, giving it a pretty good, often double digit return. Yeah, exa exactly right. And th those sort of products have been, think about it, those products were, were kind of the sexy products when yields were zero. And now it's like, okay, yields have gone up. So those product, the yields on those products have gone up even more. So they look even better, right? And then you look at, you compare them against a market that's not necessarily performing. And I mean, equities have done okay, right? But the bond market certainly hasn't, right? So, so if you can, if you can basically pitch to investors, put your money in this instead of owning bonds that are just going down every year. You know, it's, 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 uh, it's definitely bringing in inflows. And do you think that this is one of those scenarios where, you know, as you say, often um, 
volatility has gravity, but also sometimes it has the explosive qualities the other way. Do you think this could be one of those scenarios where it's a, a recalibration or a, a kind of a new structure which will be capping volatility until the point where it doesn't, and so you go from 20 is the new 30 until eventually 80 is the old 50, as in <laughs> products work yeah. until they don't work? Yeah, no, that, that, that's an interesting point. I mean, there's definitely fragilities that can build up. Um, but actually, what's interesting is, you know, if you look back at, at kind of past episodes of massive vol blow-ups, right, a lot of it tends to happen in the long-dated part of the curve because people get into these really long-dated long liquid positions that look great and perform really well for ages and then suddenly when the game changes, they can't get out, right? And and that's what creates the blow-up because there literally is no out for these people, okay? Now, I would argue a lot of vol selling, whilst there is vol selling all over the curve, a lot of vol selling has been actually focused on super short-dated options in the kind of one-day to one-week space, okay? And, and whilst that can have spectacularly big payoffs, plus and minus... It's gone in a week. Sometimes it's gone in a day, right? So you're not sitting stuck with that, right? So, so I wonder, does that actually mean there's less fragility than we've seen historically when these big crowded positions happen? If it's big crowded positioning in zero DTE, guess what? Tomorrow it's gone and the vol can reprice and reset and you could be charged 60 vol for tomorrow's options when today's options were 15. Right. So I, I think that's a cleansing mechanism yeah. that the market has because of these super short dated options. And do you think that, you know, has the market, you know, and thinking the market makers, have they recalibrated this world so that they're actually taking quite nice margins in terms of bid offer spreads on these things? Because it seems that it's, it's one of those things where rather than being everyone stuck at the long end in illiquidity and then vol blows up and kills them. Actually, this is going to be death by a thousand cuts because people keep on doing these short dated options. Are they, are the bid offer spreads going to kill these people over the long term? Or are they such an efficient market with such volumes that actually they're pretty good? Yeah, I, I don't think so. I don't, I don't think the bid offers are that, that wide at all. I think the bid offers, are, I think just index in general, like it's just, it trades like water. It's so tight. It's so liquid. And, you know, pe banks, banks make their money through commissions, right? They don't, they don't really make their money through bid offer spread. Like whenever I was, when I was on an index desk, and I'd look at what the guys in the US were doing, they would just print as much volume as they possibly could and they would print it as tight as they possibly could because the way they get paid is the commission. It's not, it's not, the, it's not the in and out. Whereas everyone yeah. on the European desk or London desk were that wide. Thanks very well, much. Well, yeah, You're exactly. There was no commission. There was no commission in Europe for some no, strange true. reason. That's true. <laughs> and, and so when you're looking at these, um, you know, you're talking about, you're looking across commodity. Are you looking at things like, um, let's say you look at a commodity um, so cross assets, sorry, you might look at a commodity vol and compare it to, let's say, a commodity currency and, and you're looking for affirmation or otherwise. And maybe, you know, emerging markets often used to have, you know, correlations with commodities as well. Are you kind of looking at those sorts of things where you kind of in your world, you'll have all these different assets and you kind of know that that asset over there in the FX world has a relationship with that asset over there in the commodity world. And you'll be kind of looking at those. And if they have a historical relationship, you might go, that's a cheap way of playing it. So I'm going to do it through the commodity rather than the FX, et cetera, et cetera. Do you do that sort of thing as well? I do. Yeah. So I, I, don't, I don't trade off it that often because I have to be very convinced about that relationship holding. Um, but I'll give you an example of when I did do it. Um, it was basically yields going higher 
impacting dollar yen, right? So for me, this was like sometime last year, I think, right? Where bond vol had popped, but dollar yen vol was still quite cheap. So for me, it was like, if I had a view that yields were going to go higher and they could break, okay, I could pay up for expensive puts on bonds or I could own cheap calls on dollar yen and it was the same trade, right? So as long as the Bank of Japan didn't budge, dollar yen would fly if yields kept going higher, right? And, and that was not really being priced. Cause, cause the thing about, the nice thing about FX options is like the daily vol on FX is very low, but the trend can just persist for months, right? So when you, when you get into a trend on FX via a naked option and you just run it, and that's why you've got to go longer dated. So in FX, I'll very rarely do anything shorter than six months, but buying, owning six month calls on dollar yen, that was my way of playing the short bond trade and that worked quite well. And when you're looking at those sorts of things, presumably, I mean, I mean, your probably sounds like you're trading them, but let's say somebody's thinking about hedging, etc. I'm guessing they have to vol adjust it because, as you said, normally, you no know, FX might be seven, eight, nine vol, equities might be fifteen to twenty vol. Obviously, you, the same notional is not the same going to be risk reward. How do you do that? Because it can be quite complex. Remember, you know, we used to have people who look at all these different, you know different to maturities, different strikes, then compare it, realize versus the implied, et cetera, et cetera, and then work out you needed four times more of that than that to have the same effective positioning on. So someone's looking at, let's say, instead of buying puts on equities, if you think that a rallying dollar, an aggressive re-rallying dollar is going to be the thing that causes everything to roll over, you might say I want to buy calls on the DXY or puts on the euro, but how, do they, mm. how should they think about sizing that so that they're getting the equivalent FX exposure that they might be getting or might be turning away in the equity exposure? Yes, yeah, so you've, you've got to kind of beta adjust it and say, you know, what, what is the beta of this FX to my view, right? And the trouble is, well, is like you're, you're not only you, you're, you're going to have to get that beta is going to have to be correct and stable and, and, and right. And then, but then the correlation is going to have to hold as well. So, so when you're hedging, I wouldn't use proxies really. Right. So if you, if you're trying to actually hedge some risk, use, probably use the options on the instrument that you're actually trying to hedge so that you have confidence that if this option, if this, if this instrument goes against me, I've got the actual correct position. Right. It's more if you're speculating and playing around tactically like I am that using proxies makes a bit more sense basically right because you're you're basically trying to say yeah I, I bet this correlation is going to continue to hold there's a bit better value doing it this way so i'm you're being cute essentially you're just being a bit cute about how you're trading right but i i wouldn't be i wouldn't try and be cute if you're hedging something right yeah. i think that's uh that's a dangerous game to probably play and something yeah. we've talked about before in terms of being cute is that if you genuinely have a position on i'm guessing let's say you've got a position that you're worried about you know you should kind of hedge it in the right instrument, but also not worry too much about whether it's one vol, vol over where you want it. Because, you know, you've probably had trades that you didn't do because your um, end customer was like, oh, it should be 15 vol and you're asking for 16 vol. And then the, the thing moves anyway and it explodes to 25 vol and they could have been long and they'd have been happy. Basically, don't mm. be cute, too cute about the price. Obviously, we don't want to aggressively overprice or overpay, but surely at the same time, people should think, okay, what's my risk budget? What can I spend on this? and do it rather than trying to worry about half a vol here or half a vol there. Yeah, so it depends how you're trading, right? If, if you're a market maker, one vol is massive, right? So 
So you will be, you know, you will care about that slippage. If you're a directional person who's trying to buy naked option and has got a three to six month view on the asset, then yeah, that, that one vol point makes very little difference to you, right? Because you have to think of it in the premium that you're actually spending. What's this one vol? How much extra premium is that? And does that materially impact the risk reward of this trade if it goes the way I expect it to go? The answer is probably going to be no. Yeah. And and so on that, I know it's something which I probably bring up with you every time we have a chat, but it's just to remind um, kind of people of some of these risks was, you know, when you get the direction 100% right, but you pay 100% the wrong price for your options. So the opposite of what I've just been saying, and you see, let's say, a stock that's routed and routed and routed and you buy a put and it collapses back down, but you make no money. Could you just go through that? Because obviously in this world where we are still seeing some meme stocks playing out and we are in, you know, lots of volume going through in the options market. Just those risks where, you know, the, the time when you get the direction completely right, but you get screwed because you got the wrong price on the option. Yes. Yeah, so, so the important thing to understand is that options contain multiple dimensions of risk. They contain risk to the underlying asset and where that goes, but they also contain risk to the implied vol of the option. Okay. So you need to always have some awareness about where that implied vol is. So, so if you're talking about things like meme stocks, I mean, it's a good example because it was such an extreme change in implied vol. So you, you, you're talking about GameStop and names like AMC or whatever it was that used to trade on vols of maybe 30, 40% implied that they went up into the hundreds. Those implied vols went into the literally above 200, I believe. Okay. I think one, I think one so goes when you, 999. Didn't quite make it to 1,000. What, vol? 999 vol? I think so, yeah. I think one of them got to something utterly ludicrous. Most of them were a couple of hundred vol, but yeah. I think one actually got to just outside and didn't quite ring the 1,000. Wow. And I just thought, God, that's, that's loony, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, so the funny thing about that is when the entire curve shifts by that amount, you can have a situation where the stock has rallied or the stock has doubled or tripled in value, but put options are, are worth more money than they were yesterday. Even though you've got further away from the strike of your put option, the value of the put option has gone up because the vol element has gone up so much it's completely counteracted what's happening on the delta because they're way, way out of the money option. So it's a low delta option anyway, right? So this doesn't happen very often. But when you see that type of thing happen where an option that is a naked option is going up in value whilst the spot is moving away in the opposite direction, that is usually a sign that that option is really not going to work if the spot goes back down, right? So that's an option you want to sell every day of the week because it's just trading at the wrong price. And it's trading at the wrong price because the market is just indiscriminately buying vol everywhere. And um, it is a bit of an inefficiency, really, in the market. Um, but, but, but it does happen from time to time. And when you're saying before, you know, that there's this supply which has sort of maybe distorted the S&P volatility market, do you have a go-to um, equity index vol or volatility market where it's still relatively pure and honest, as it were, or do you have to kind of use, as you say, the, the macro backdrop of different assets moving in different ways and combine that with your new view on, on let's say, S&P volatility, or do you kind of go, actually, the DAX volatility is still accurate, or the FTSE, or the Nikkei, or something? Do you have anything that's a go-to yeah. that people can look at? 
No, I think similar to everyone else on the planet, I think S&P is still the thing I'll look at the most because it's the most liquid. So I'll just know that there is a lot of supply of it, right? So I'll know that VIX, vol spikes, VIX spikes will be generally quite short-lived. So, you know, probably the most successful trade I've had this year is every time the VIX spikes, I, I fade that VIX spike via some sort of VIX optionality, right? Or, or it might not even be VIX optionality. So there's probably three ways I'll fade the VIX spike. One will just be bu- buying puts on the VIX. One will be buying futures calendars on the VIX. So I'll be doing a steepener trade on the VIX because the yeah. VIX has gone from very steep contango to flat, maybe slightly inverted. So I'll be selling the front end and I'll be buying the back end yeah. and I'll be looking for that to re-steepen again. Um, so that will be where I don't use optionality, where I just use VIX futures. Uh, and then, then the mo- more complex one would be a VIX put calendar that I trade because the put itself is too expensive. So I've found an alternative way to express the same view, get exposure to the VIX collapsing, but not buy a load of expensive VIX optionality because the VIX vol has gone through the roof. And do you do you kind of um, mitigate the the risk? Because obviously, you know, the one thing that people always worry about is if I'm short vol, I have unlimited downside risk. And obviously, you know, pros can deal with that normally. Would you say that if people are going short vol, they should try and maybe buy a, a further out of the money um, opposite you know, position just to make sure? Or do you think there are some positions where you, you know, in an index, you hope that the VIX isn't going to suddenly hit 80 overnight, but you never know. That's always been the risk. On single stocks, I'd never recommend anyone going short vol. But do you, do you mitigate those risks or do you feel comfortable that at the index level you can be short and, and be okay? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. I mean, I generally teach all of my cohort of subscribers and, and students, whoever, that, yes, it's best to always cap your downside, right? There will be very rare occasions where the whole point of doing the trade is that you just think the vol is completely the wrong price and you want to be short the vol. But even that is risky, right? Because you might be wrong and the vol's there for a reason, right? So generally, doing things where your your downside is limited, it's fine to short vol, but generally sell spreads, sell iron condors, butterflies, things like that, that have limited downside losses, but are still short vol positions that will work if the vol resets lower. That tends to be my MO. And on those occasions when I do sell some outright vol, because I just think it's so damn juicy, it, I will usually have a stop loss associated with that. I'll be disciplined about it. I won't get married to the position because yeah, these things, you can be wrong, right? Like you have to expect that you're going to be wrong a certain amount of the time. And you don't want the time that you're wrong to just blow your entire book to smithereens because you are stubborn basically. Yeah, hmm. and uh, I love it because yeah, I would do the condors, the iron condors, multi-legged optionality, isn't it? It's kind of buy, sell, sell, buy, buy, sell, buy, that sort of thing. So you basically you might have a short, but you mitigate it by buying maybe out of the money and a further out of the money. Various strategies like that. Yeah, the way the way to think about iron condors is where you think a market's going to be range bound. You're selling a strangle, which is an out of the money call and a put, but you're buying a strangle that's further out just in case. Yeah. That's what you're doing, right? So you're just making sure you've not got unlimited risk if this thing just blows through one of the strikes. And just, you know, notwithstanding that you know, lots going on in the market at the moment and you know, recording this, as I say, on the 4th of October. But are there any things that really stand out? Because, you know, we've been seeing, as you say, it's sort of 
Some of the headline levels looks like there's, when you look at bond vol and equity vol, they're kind of doing different things, but you look under the hood and some of the kind of higher beta sectors are doing really poorly and only 10 stocks are driving the whole performance of the S&P, et cetera. Are there anything that's standing out sort of, that you think will sort of maintain its sort of standout qualities over the next next few days or, or even weeks that you think are, you know, that you've been looking at going, that's really interesting? <clears throat> um, so the kind, of, the kind of things I've had going on, you know, we, we got into some oil call spreads. Uh, we, we did roll a little bit of that exposure, kind of try and monetize some of it. Um, the oil skew did compress, but it has started to pop back a little bit again. So the oil market to me looks a little bit undecided whether or not the correction needs to extend out a bit. And I'm, it's not, I'm not seeing signs in the options market that, that we're just going to smash straight through to the upside in oil, right? So there was a bit of signs of exhaustion in, in the oil rally. Um, Bonds look like they're oversold for sure in the options market. So I think we are setting up for a tactical bounce. Who knows how long it will last, but I'd be shocked if within the next week we don't put in some kind of bottom in bonds. Um, it depends on non-farms really. Non-farms could be the catalyst for that. Um, if, if that number's like weak-ish, then that might be the spark that the bond market needs. But like I say, structurally, there's, there's a lot of reasons why bonds are probably still going to keep selling off. So I do think it will be a tactical bounce. Uh, I do think equities have got potential to kick into some seasonality for year end. Um, you know, like I said, on the way down, the realized vol's not really spiking, right? We were being dragged lower reluctantly by bonds, but I think equities will want to rally. They just need an excuse, right? Mm. Um, it's very strong seasonality going into Q4. You know, we've been up in the first three quarters. You tend to be up a good 5% on average in the fourth quarter. Um, so I think putting on bullish structures using optionality for equities will, will work quite well. Um, so whether it's call spreads, call calendars, call ladders, things like that, which don't get you too long vol, but get you long the market with like, you know, targeting say 4,500 or higher into November or December expiry. Those are the type of structures that I think do make sense. And I, I'm, I'm looking to enter into. But like I, said, I also think the VIX, I think the VIX gravity is going to kick in. You know, you've got seasonality for going into Thanksgiving. The VIX, the VIX normally spikes into late September, early October. And we've seen that. But then it always falls into Thanksgiving as well. Right. So I think using VIX optionality to play a move back down in the VIX is, is probably an even higher, probably higher expected value trade than being long S&P down here, right? Because the VIX can come down even if S&P doesn't bounce, right? If it just flatlines for a bit, the VIX can come down. Whereas if you buy calls on the S&P, you actually need it to rally. Right? Yeah. And this feels in some ways a bit like, you know, 2022 was the best behaved bear market. I think a lot of us have seen in that fell 20%, but we never really saw big spikes in the VIX. Once we got that first quarter Ukraine situation out of the way, Actually, if anything, you know, most people would have expected, as you probably just as you're pointing out earlier, VIX probably should have been higher given the, the magnitude of the sell off. But everybody kind of everyone knew it was going to sell off. Everyone bought puts. So every time it did sell off, they sold puts and therefore vol back to the market. And it just never really got going. And it feels a bit the same way again, where we're getting these quite big moves in, in yield, particularly at the first year. And yet the equity market kind of wants to go down because of that re rating or whatever. But ultimately, it sounds like that. If people still have these positions on. I think people would already hedge the DAX, for instance, because the skew would move that. It's just things that, that you know, people are, particularly the professional community, 
keep on expecting this to roll over. And as a result, they're kind of prepositioned for it. Yeah, we, we see, you know, so fast how quickly that, that you say the professional trading community flips their books around pretty fast, right? So we see de-risking happen very, very fast. So in the last few weeks, as markets have been correcting, you know, you've now got so much de-risking that's gone on. And then you've got these systematic players like the CTAs that are, that just kind of chase the price lower as well and kind of exacerbate that move towards the end of it. So I think the pain trade is starting to look like a move higher from this current juncture because people have de-risked themselves again. CTAs have like offloaded all their delta again. And, and, and now, you know, it's, it's time for the Q4 seasonality to kick in. I, I don't know what the catalyst is going to be. Is it going to be a better earnings season? Is it going to be a topping out of rates due to weaker economic data and a bit of a dovish comment out of Powell or something like that? Who knows, right? But once it gets its catalyst, don't be surprised to see a 5 to 10%, 5 to 10% rally in Q4. I think something you were talking about earlier, which is one of the risks is that you know, we keep forgetting because we go, oh, higher rates, higher yields is bad because everyone's got debt. But actually, there's a lot of companies, well, not a lot, but there's a, a big chunk of companies with lots of cash. There's a wealthy cohort with lots of cash, and they're actually doing pretty well out of this. So whilst, whilst anyone who's indebted is getting pretty screwed, there's another bunch who aren't. And, and it doesn't feel like we've broken the complete back of the market because the cash rich are actually getting richer as yields go up and interest rates go up. It feels that that still hasn't broken down yet. And that's, as you say, maybe where we get a little bit of surprise with these cash rich, what, what you probably call quality names, they could maybe surprise once again. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, I think that's right. You know, people have been calling for the recession from the start of this year. And they've just had to keep kicking the can down the road, right? So I've got a I, think we've well, I think we've well and truly kicked it back into next year, uh, it seems. And, and yeah, and, and therefore the equity rally, if you haven't got a recession staring you in the face right now, then that does leave, that does leave room for equities to see some strength, I think. And do you think that, you know, is it just a, a headline play? I mean, some people sort of say, look, we've got these yields that are up. And if the equity market's not down, you might get this sort of almost like a, a, a kind of a reflation um, impulse, i.e., you know, every, everyone thinks binary. Everyone goes market's up, market down. But as you said, maybe the S&P goes sideways, vol, um, compresses a bit, because actually what's happening is people are chasing maybe some of the cyclicality. So some of those maybe the commodity stocks and maybe the quality tech names, et cetera. So do you think it's plausible that, Rather than, rather than everyone wanting up or down, actually, it might be pick your sector, pick your stocks, because some might perform quite nicely here. Definitely. I mean, energy has been doing pretty well, obviously. Uh, metals and mining, not so much. Um, so if you're looking for value and you're looking for like a cyclical play and like you do think a reflation trade can come back, then probably metals and mining, XME, was a great way to get along that, given that it's been beaten up recently. Um, but then you need industrial metals to rally for that, really, right? So we, we've seen copper looking a bit heavy. Obviously, you've seen what happens to the precious metal complex. So you, you would need to see those physical metals going going higher again to get, get the miners excited. And generally, all that space tends to be very much China-centric. Um, and and newsflow out of China hasn't been amazing. Um, I don't know. We're starting to see signs that China might turn. But that every time you, you think it is, it's, it's like a head fake and it just collapses another quick 5-10%. So... I don't want to, I don't want to keep trying to call a bottom in China. Um, but, but they, I have noticed though that that space has been getting killed recently. 
And I think, I, I mean, my, my take on that is that, you know, there's still this Pavlovian conditioning from the last 15, 20 years, which is every time China comes in with looser policy or, an, you know, does its credit impulse up again, everyone goes, oh, global growth. But actually, China's focused much more on effectively shoring up its internal problems with credit and with policy rather than going, oh, we're going to build more buildings, which is good for global growth. So that global mm. growth impulse has just not come from the Chinese credit impulse. And I think, I think that's really kind of their, their shift. And you know, they keep on telling us they're focusing on you know, supporting, shoring up internally and not on the things that make the rest of the world happy. And we know that that, that has already slowed down. You can see it from the exports to the US, which has slowed down dramatically. So I think that refocus is probably there. Um, do you think, what, what do you think in terms of, you know, when, we, when we're looking at and you're talking about the, the things like precious metals, is there anything people could do with gold? Because, you know, that, the real yield versus gold price, alligator jaws, very, very wide. Gold should be a lot lower. Mm. And, and it feels like, you know, unless we get a, you know, a structural rebound in bonds and decline in yields, gold could still be under pressure. And yet, I sit there and think, hmm, if I carry on kicking the can, but that can is now going to be sometime in the next 12 months, we will get the policy mm. response, and then suddenly gold will turn around and boom, straight up to 2,000. I mean, do you look at, do you look at um, options in that market? Is there any way that you think of gold, or do you just want to stay away for now until you know, we see a, a clear um, uh, momentum? So I, yeah, so I was scratching my head a month or two ago, wondering why gold wasn't lower, so, um, because of the real yield move and the fact the dollar was so firm, and those, those seem to be the biggest two driving factors. So, so I, I was under the impression someone was just, someone like China was just sitting there on the bid buying up gold and stopping it from going down. Now it looks like that bid got pulled because obviously we've had air pocket lower and we have had real yields go quite, quite far up to 240 odd. Um, so now, you know, I agree the longer dated story in gold is still probably intact, but if you were going to do that, yeah, using one year plus options in gold is an okay play. But you are buying Vega just after Vega has had a bit of an uptick. So you are risking a remark in Vega, you know, if, if things calm down a bit. Um, so one way you might want to do it is say, well, gold's going through a bit of a correction right now. And whilst I'm longer term bullish, I think between now and the end of the year, I think it's still going to have problems, right? So, so what you could do is you could leg into like a, you could get into some sort of call cool calendar structure where, you sell December this year calls to own December next year calls, something like that. So you effectively cheapen your cost of next December calls on gold by however much, depending on what strike you end up selling. And you, you pick upside strikes, but you try and pick an upside strike that you don't see gold breaking by the end of this year as your short strike. And then, and then you decide how much you want to spend to decide what strike you're going to buy for next year. So those are the type of trades maybe that can make sense in, in gold right now. So basically what you're doing is effectively, yeah, you see sort of legging into it, you basically, it's a bit, gold is sort of dead in the water for now, but if the action's going to take place, it's going to take place sometime through 2024. And so you're just cheapening it with that, that front month call. Um, and what, what are the, I mean, one of the things that you always look at and, and like, and you know, on, on moves, so for instance, in the bond market, you know, extreme move, is often, you know, sell an option, let's say sell a call to buy a put or sell a put to buy a call. Do you, do you still think those aren't, you know, good trades for, um, let's say, non-specialists to put on? Or would you say against, I mean, I'm guessing if it's against a position, it's actually a yeah. very nice way to play tactically around a longer term theme. Yes, yeah, so I did this recently on uranium. So 
I had uh, I had a position. I've, I've had a long term position on Kamiko, right? One of the the biggest uh, uranium miners for ages, right? Uh, but this move was going so parabolic that I just I was like, okay, I was, I'm happy to do this risk reversal and do it zero cost to the end of the year. So December expiry, um, the stock the stock went up to like 42, but then pulled back to 40. So then I, I sold a 48 call, which is 20% out of the money call. And I was able to buy a 34 put, which was a 15% out of the money put because the SKU had flipped into call premium by quite a long way. So I'm getting to sell a 20% out call to own a put that's only 15% out all the way to December expiry. And that, that is, I've already got the position in the book, in the long-term portfolio anyway. So that way I'm like, I'm spending no premium. If the stock does pull back, back towards 30, 35, whatever it is, my risk reverse has made a load of money and I'll exit it and I'll just go back to my stock position. And if the stock keeps rallying and goes through 48 by December, I've let go, I've let go of some of my shares at a 20% premium to where they are today. So I'm more than happy to do that. So that was the rationale for sticking that in the book. I guess that also goes back to something which, you know, you see a lot of hysteria around optionality because, you know, as I mentioned before, if you're short, you're going to do your nuts. But actually, if you've got an existing position, like you're long something and you then sell a call against it, you know, or you've got cash and you want to get long. I mean, some people say you don't want to do it necessarily systematically, but if you've got very, very comfortable levels, I mean, using short optionality against a position of cash or of a long asset is actually quite a rational uh, and sensible thing to do, and people shouldn't be too nervous of that. Obviously, maybe not your first trade ever, but certainly these are mm. good op- good opportunities to to express oneself. Yeah, the, the truth is, most of the people who've traded options for multiple years know the only way you're going to consistently make money is if you if you can get comfortable selling options, right? So there's various ways of doing it. Covered calls is a great one. I've got loads of people who've joined my. Um, subscription and who have benefited from selling covered calls that's that's been one of their better strategies over the years um cash covered put selling as you described is another way of doing it um that's where you that's where you have the cash ready in the bank to buy a stock but you wait you're waiting for a certain level and while you're waiting you sell a put to bring in some premium basically and if we go down through that put strike you are happy to take delivery of that of that stock. And I guess yeah, that's, so that's another nice thing. When you put these on, you've got to be happy to do that because a lot of people you hear, oh, in hindsight, God, if I hadn't sold it there, I could have sold it much lower sort of thing. But actually, you've got to be, you've, you know, you've got to be happy that you're going to buy it there because it could not just go through your strike, it could go significantly lower. And if you're then going to go, oh, I could have mm-hmm. bought it cheaper. Well, you probably shouldn't have been doing it in the first place. Totally. You, you've got to make peace with that, right? And, and that's that, to be fair, that's kind of true of all trading, right? It's like, you've got to have your game plan up front. You've got to know where you're going to, where you are happy getting in, where you're happy getting out, what your stop loss is, what your size is, how much you're willing to lose, how much you're trying to gain. These are all things you should write down or at least know before you execute a trade, right? And they shouldn't be things that you decide on the fly in the moment, right? So that's, that's not, that's not the way to do it. And just sort of, Sort of coming in, sort of wrapping it all up. Um, what are the what are the most important things for you when you're when you're now? You know, we've talked about quite a lot of things, but let's say you've got your dashboard. Are there you know what are the things that you're looking for? Let's say um, to make you more worried, and okay, time to maybe get the tin hat out, or that you know, okay, 
maybe we go beyond a year-end rally and into something which is much more structural. Do you have a few go-to indicators specifically, and I'm sure you've mentioned some of them, but are the ones where you kind of go, look, what I really care about is that, 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 and that, and those are the ones that I spend my, my, most of my time eyeballing to give me my basic kind of fear, greed type indicator. Yes, yeah, so I've got enough dashboards that for me, like when I look at all of them, if, if there's few things that are telling a story, then, then I'll get a sense. But for example, something I monitor pretty closely is fixed strike vol moves. Okay. And, and the reason I do that is because that will give me a sense of dealers positioning. And just explain so that. There, there's a lot of models. So fixed strike vol is where you're actually looking at specific expiry options and you're looking at specific strikes and you're tracking how the implied vol on those specific strikes is moving over over various number of days if spot actually does move, right? Because when you just look at the VIX number itself, we look at the at the money vol on S&P, that reference to a, a previous time yesterday or a week ago, whatever, the spot was trading at a different level. So you're not really comparing like for like when you're comparing, when you're saying that at the money vol has changed because the at the money by definition means the vol at this spot level. But if the spot level last week was completely different, obviously the vol would have changed, right? So whilst the vol might have changed because spot dropped by 2%, what if the actual option that you're currently sitting at, at the at the money strike option, what if the vol on that option actually dropped on the week? That tells you a very different story to the fact that vols up two vols this week. You can have a situation where vols up two vols this week, but it should have been up three, but it's up two, which means really it's down one, right? So, because the fixed strike vols down one vol. So as an, an example, you, you're, what you're saying is, let's say we drop from 4,400 down to 4,200 on the S&P, and 4,400 might, yeah. we might have been at, let's say, 14 vol, and 4,200 went at that point was at 20 vol, but by the time you get there, it's only down at 18 vol, Actually, that volatility exactly. is up, but it's down, if you know what I mean. Correct. Yeah. So the vol's got, the at the money vol's gone from 14 to 18, but the fixed strike 4200 strike vol has gone from 20 to 18, yeah. which is down two points. So what does that tell me? That tells me that the dealer community is not stressed at all about being short vol. If anything, they're long vol and they're trying to get rid of it, right? Or there's been a load of people who are long puts who've come and monetized them and sold them back to the street and created this pressure on implied vol, which is telling you that smart money who saw the sell-off coming is saying the sell-off's done, yeah. right? So these are very different messages you're getting from just blindly looking at the fact vol's gone up four vols in a week or whatever, right? So you have to know, you have to look at it through the different lenses to see that. So when I'm seeing market going down like it is now, and I'm seeing fixed strike vol up since last Friday, we're down a percent and a half, um, which means we're obviously up in, in vol terms, in, in absolute, but fixed strike vol's up as well. That's kind of starting to tell me, all right, the street's a little bit stressed here. The street is not, is not, is not sitting long loads of vol. They're happy to pay up for a bit of optionality here, even though there were some big sellers at the end of last week that were giving the street a load of Vega. The fact that we've moved down one and a half percent and they're coming to buy it by Vega tells me that they're not net long loads of residual Vega, right? So if the street isn't long loads of vol, then it means the street might be in a more fragile position. When I say the street, I mean the dealer community, the banks, the market makers, etc. And on top of that, we've got rates vol going to extremes. So that I think that's really what's dragging the vol higher. I think 
race vols going to extremes and people are saying, oh, this race market is getting a bit ugly. I'm going to buy some vols like uh, opportunistically. So I, again, that's my take on it, right? I, I think the, mar- the vol reaction in equities is a function of what we've seen in rates, which means if the rates move is overdone and we are going to get a tactical bounce, then the equity vol is going to get slammed, right? But if the bond move doesn't stop, then equities vol has got quite a lot of room to catch up if it wants to go. So, and do you think people may have sort of gone, oh, you know, that, that spread between equity vol and rates vol is really, really wide. I'll sell a bit of rates vol, buy a bit of equity vol. So upside pressure on the equity vol with a view that either bonds um, rally, that vol comes right back down in, in, in the bonds, maybe four or five points versus maybe one or two points in, in equities. Or if those high yields and that move in the bond market really has undermined, we're actually going to do that potentially gap up in, in VIX despite that supply. And so actually maybe people put that structure on. Is that you know, potentially what people could have done? People could have done that, but I think that's quite a brave trade to do personally. <laughs> sort of thing you do. <laughs> because... No, I don't know. I don't know that I'm brave enough to do that one, to be honest. <laughs> no, fair enough. Great. So, I mean, I think that, that that's, I mean, the point there is that on that fixed strike, I think is, you know, it's been a very, very good um, directional help over the last 12 months or so, maybe even now over the last almost two years, where you can see, you know, that, that as you say, that fixed strike vol and the information that's provided. Do you, do you, you, when you talk about the can, is there anything you look for there between, let's say, the front month or maybe the front or second month versus maybe six months out? Do you have a kind of go-to calendar in the equity market that gives you information? Um, no, I mean, ge- generally, you know, inverted curves don't hang around for that long, right? So my kind of instinct when a curve goes inverted, i.e. the front vols go above the medium-term vols, my instinct will be to be wanting to buy calendars. So I want to own the three three to six month stuff and I want to sell the one or two month stuff because I want to play that mean reversion. But if a curve inverts and then persists and stays inverted for like a month, then you kind of need to accept this is not one of those times, right? So, so generally you'll get mean reversion pretty quickly off an inversion but there are like once in a blue moon, the inversions will just keep going. And then, and you, then you're like, say, okay, you know what? We're in a different regime now. So I need to be more careful about using this as a sell indicator for Volt. So, and it sounds like, you know, if, if you had, had the balls, et cetera, or you had the ammunition, a tiny position in some of these is going to give you good informational value because if you've got them on and you're monitoring them, and as long as it's not something which is ever going to cause you too much pain, you can actually give yourself information to be able to then trade other things much more aggressively um, out of those. So I suppose there's information value in, in being, let's say, wrong on some of those ty- types of trades. Yeah, I mean, this, this reminds me of when one of my old mentors said to me that positions speak to you, right? So when you put on small positions in a bunch of different things and you watch them, they speak to you, right? They either confirm or disconfirm your views. And so, because if you don't have the position on, chances are you're not going to watch it as closely. Whereas if you have the position on, you're going to feel the P&L every day, right? So th- there is no harm in scattering a few positions around in small size because they will speak to you. Brilliant. Well, Imran, thank you for speaking to me today. It's been a great conversation. Thanks very much. Lots of uh, option insights there. And so uh, hopefully we'll, uh, we'll do this again because it's always a pleasure to talk to you and pick your brains about what you're seeing in that volatility matrix.
No, I love I love talking to you, Roger. You are you are one of the you know you're a, you're one of the, the a joy a joy to chat to, and I really enjoyed the course we did together. So Brilliant. Thanks a lot. Thank you, and I'll make sure that my colleagues keep that bit in. Thank you.